This is Hebrews 2020, 2.20, increment 2.20, and we're going to begin a two-part series at least. It might go further than that, and I'm simply entitling it An Archpriest of Such Significance! Exclamation point. And today will be part one, the text, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, but also Ezekiel, the first chapter a chapter that has ever intrigued me and always enthralled me and does each time I consider it, each time I look at it. Before we get started, however, I want to give a special introduction today and call it Linda Kelly, Beyond Sparkle. On the same day as the lunar eclipse of the blood flower moon, on May 15th of this year and I actually stood out in front of my house and watched that as the clouds broke open and saw that lunar eclipse but on that same day Linda Kelly our beloved sister in Jesus departed from this world to future world and this world as a result <clears throat> experienced an eclipse of light with her departure though she leaves a legacy of faith and a trail of treasured memories. Linda paid attention daily to the prophetic word made more sure as to a lamp in the dark place of this evil age. And now the day star has arisen in her heart. Especially in her last days, she became more and more attuned to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and where the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, shines with the brilliance and with the splendor beyond sparkle of God and the Lamb. She has not seen death, but the one who redeemed her from death, who took her in his embrace, insisting that he have the first dance with her in the heavenly Jerusalem. Her, one of her passions was dance, and she was formerly a Rockette, one of the famous dancers in New York. While she was here, she was a gatherer to the Lord. A woman of joy and virtue who attracted others to her Savior. She's in my heart still, and I have vivid memories of her sitting attentively in this very congregation and showing forth the light that lit her countenance. And I have memories of Linda in this very hallway of this building, basking in the warm brilliance of fellowship in the spirit, in the word, in the body of Christ. Her beloved husband, Bob, said that she never missed a word in these last 20 years of the teachings from this pulpit and he said that made her passing which she was very much ready and prepared for a wonderful experience for her family rather than a disastrous one her caregivers were amazed at her confidence and cheerfulness and faith so to Linda's husband Bob sons 
Shannon Delaney and wife Stephanie and Brock Delaney, who is avidly proclaiming this message, incidentally, and his wife Nikki, to her brother Chuck and wife Magda, who have been in our church also for many years and decades, and their daughter Charity, who was particularly close to Linda, to her four grandchildren, Joshua, Justin, Jonathan, and Kara Grace Delaney, and to all those who loved her and shared her faith in Jesus and her hope of future world, those from Virginia and West Virginia, Ohio, Hawaii, and Pennsylvania. We of her Tetelestai family send our heartfelt love. And we're praying that you experience the mercy and the compassion of our great archpriest, Jesus, the Son of God, who passed through the heavens and blazed the trail that Linda has now followed, as did her sister, Sharon Scott, and grandson, Jonah Delaney, who preceded her in the homecoming with the Lord. She is among the champions, and that's the word that her husband Bob used for her, the champion, a champion of the faith. And she's among those who are written up in Faith Hall of Fame, of which a small sample is found in Hebrews 11, 1 through 40. We'll see you soon, Linda. And so, Father, we thank you today that indeed your word is a light and is life and prepares us for our passage from this life to be with you. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of continuing in this wonderful sermon which you inspired centuries ago. It still has such pertinence and relevance on the level of our own time. In this meantime, between the radical alteration of our situation and the imminent, impending alteration of our human condition when Jesus appears a second time. We pray that you'll administer your great compassion to those who have experienced loss, including Linda's family and others who have experienced such loss and grief. And we thank you, Father, and in our thanksgiving, we entrust our spirit to you, commit our souls to you, a faithful creator, present our bodies to you, and give you our heart that we may be taught of you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is going to be <clears throat> a meditation of sorts, which I'm going to call a son a man enthroned. And it will prepare us, I think, for the ongoing exegesis of this epistle, this homily, this sermon, especially as we continue in Hebrews 8.1, which we've already begun. When we read and study Hebrews, I speak for myself, but I also think I speak for others. We are enthralled. That's kind of the word of the day today, enthralled captivated. We're not to be so much enthralled with the notion 
that Jesus is a priest or even that he is our great archpriest. We are rather to be enthralled with Jesus as the exalted son of man who is a priest among his other vocations as king and mediator, upholder of all things, sustainer of the universe which God brought into being by him. We are to be enthralled with the fact that the one through and for whom God created the universe and programmed the ages, the radiance of God's grandeur, the substance of God's essence, the sun, became a human being like us and yet so unlike us in order to be selected from among men to be our archpriest while remaining true God. We're very much enthralled that we have an archpriest of such significance that our archpriest is Jesus, the Son of God, and none other. That he, for example, the one with the form of a man above, speaking of the vision that was had by a 30-year-old young man on his birthday, a priest named Ezekiel, who was also a seer and a prophet, on the day when he would have entered the priesthood had he still been in Jerusalem, but now he had been deported and was living in a refugee camp on an irrigation canal called the Kebar, from the Euphrates River. And he saw a storm coming. But in the storm clouds, he saw something that should enthrall us. And we'll speak of this in a moment. Jesus is the one with the form of a man above who is also the very radiance of Yahweh's glory, enthroned on a lapis lazuli-looking, dynamically mobile throne, on wheels within wheels, above a heavenly ice-like dome, above four mighty-winged living beings in the highest height of the cobalt-blue heavens. It's pretty fitting that enthralled and enthroned are found so close together in dictionaries, at least in English dictionaries. It's also very fitting that the Hebrew's homily begins with son, S-O-N, in Hebrews 1-2. God has spoken to us definitively and with finality in a son in these last days. We've seen that the anarthrous noun, Weo can be rendered the son. God has spoken to us in these last days in the son. Huio. It doesn't say God's son, though we could assume that to be the case, and of course it is. And we'd be right because this son is later ID'd 
as Jesus, the Son of God, in Hebrews 4.14. This Son is the Son of God who humbled himself and the Son of Man who was exalted to God's right hand in the heavens where he sits on his Father's throne. Revelation 3.21. Just what is this throne of God? What is it? Quits it. Is it a literal throne? A regal chair or bench where divinity sits and where this man above sits? Or is the throne heaven itself as Yahweh announces in Isaiah 66.1? Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Ho oronas moi thronas he dege hupopodion. Yahweh says, Heaven is my throne. And yet in Isaiah 6 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet reports this I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Epithronu hupselu. By a conflation of these two verses in Isaiah 6 1 with 66 1, it would seem that God's throne is both all of heaven itself, and this same throne can be concentrated in a manner of speaking into a glorious royal chair, or better than that, a chariot. This is suggested even more strongly by the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where the prophet reports that the Lord's glory filled the temple. Even though the Lord's concentrated presence, as it were, was and is seated on a throne, his glory, his extended presence, so to speak, filled the temple, ultimately a suggestion that God's glory will fill the entire heavens and earth. And why not? In Isaiah 66, 2, Yahweh says, Didn't my hand make all these things? The Septuagint says, For all these things are mine. At the living, loving heart of the revelation of Holy Scripture is not man alone, nor is it God alone, but the God-man. The heart of the Scripture and its revelation is not theomonistic. That's actually a word that is only about God. Nor is it anthro-monistic, only about man. It is Christological, and as such, it is about God and man. God in man, and man in God. God with man, and man with God. And so we are, in short, enthralled that we have such 
an archpriest who is also the enthroned and exalted man above, while he is at the same time the ambient radiance of Yahweh, according to Ezekiel 1, to 28. At the heart of the scriptural revelation, then, is an enthroned man, and in him an enthroned humanity. This enthroned man is the God-man, the Son of God, humbled, and the Son of Man, exalted in one person, Jesus our Lord. We see him enthroned and crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God who humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, and please note this, the Son of God who humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, passed through the heavens as the Son of Man to be exalted to God's mighty right hand. We are enthralled with our great archpriest because he is such an archpriest as to be identified with the man above who is seen in the premier vision of God in Ezekiel especially 126 to 28, but really the whole of the first chapter. One person in the shape and form of a man above, who is also the radiance of Yahweh. This one person is the Yahweh man, Yahweh man, Yahweh Yeshua. He is none other than he whom we know and see as Jesus, Yahweh, Yeshua. In an astounding vision of God in Ezekiel 1, the exiled Hebrew prophet and priest on his 30th birthday, when he would have entered his vocation as a priest, had he still been in Jerusalem, Ezekiel sees an awe-inspiring and terrifically imposing set of roiling storm clouds approaching as he sits near the Kabar Canal. He sees within these clouds the appearance of wheels within wheels and of four-winged living beings with the wings of each stretched out and touching one another each living being with four faces, one on each of four sides, a human face in front, a lion's face on the right, the face of an ox on the left, the face of an eagle toward the rear, as Ezekiel 1.10 describes it. This suggestion is the representation of all the creatures of earth that forms the footstool of the Lord. Above them, there is an ice-like platform or arch or dome. The young priest prophet sees like an appearance of lapis lazuli stone. But he sees come into focus the shape of a throne. To thranu upon this platform. So you have wheels within wheels, and above those wheels, living creatures, wings outstretched, touching one another, upholding, as it were, a kind of platform. On the platform, a throne, 
These wheels within wheels are powered by divine power. They form a vehicle throne, a chariot. The lapis lazuli stone consists of a deep blue lazurite, a gleaming pyrite, and a cloudy white calcite, all of which evokes the appearance of the sky or the heaven. Lapis lazuli has been and is still associated with the warding off of psychic attacks, with a calming influence, as well as with higher intellectual capacities and wisdom, all very interesting, if not magical, ascriptions to this gemstone. In any case, the sky or the heavens or heaven is associated with blue. We see the sky on some days a cerulean sky blue. On others, it seems like a striking vivid cobalt blue with brilliant white billowing clouds against it. And so all of heaven, that which Paul called the third heaven, all of heaven can be conceived of as being this lapis lazuli-like appearance, as can its concentrated appearance in a throne. More enthralling still, on the likeness of this throne, so the prophet seems to look from the bottom to the top. He sees these wheels within wheels that make this throne have a mobility anywhere it wants to go suddenly and with phenomenal speed. Then he sees these creatures above the wheels, sort of in a fourfold configuration. Above them a platform, above them a throne or a chair, but more striking of all. He sees the likeness just as the form of a man above. A man on a lapis lazuli-like throne. But as the seer priest goes on in his attempt of describing the super sublime, he reports something like the appearance of electrum. Could this be an electric vehicle? An alloy of silver and gold from what appeared to be from his loins downward. But this electrum appearance was in the man, the man above. And something like the appearance of fire all around. And its radiance was all around, or what we would call ambient radiance. In his attempt to relay this vision, Ezekiel then said that this radiance all around was like the appearance of a rainbow. Whenever it's in the cloud on a rainy day evoking God's enduring promise and the many-tinted grace of God. Of this vision of the radiance all around, the priest prophet concludes, and this most profoundly, he says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Ezekiel 128, the Septuagint has it in 2.1 of Ezekiel. Glory is the translation of the Hebrew kavod or kabod, K 
K-A-B-O-D, which means heavy in the sense of significant. Kabod means significance. Consider that. The Greek equivalent is doxe. Kabod is the visible manifestation of God's presence in person. A presence which manifests his supreme significance. Now when we speak, as we do so often, of the significance of Jesus Christ, we are speaking of his glory. To our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, belongs the glory, the doxe, the kabod, the significance, both now and to the day of eternity. In 2 Peter 3.18. Peter is careful to show that the glory or the significance of Jesus Christ is that of Lord and Savior. His significance is that of sovereignty and of salvation, both of which cover all of time and all of creation. His significance is his sovereign, saving significance, his universally saving significance, which rules the day. The main impression we're given is that this enthroned man above the ice-like arch, above the four-faced, winged living beings, is the very radiance of God, the exact stamp or impress of God's royalty, and the very reality of God's substance. All of divinity in a discernible, man-like form. Notice the three R's here, royalty, reality, radiance. Ezekiel's sudden diving prostration is fully understandable. God the Son was in the form of a man even before he assumed the likeness of sinful men. He was in the form and essence of God before he willingly came to be in the likeness of sinful humanity. The Son of God always from eternity had the form of a man above, above angels, above all. But only from the incarnation onward was he, was he enfleshed with our humanity, with our flesh to be beleaguered by our infirmities and adversities, tests and temptations, to endure the fierce and irrational animosity of sinners, and ultimately to become sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That he appears on a throne with wheels within wheels, declares that he is, quote, the God of the beloved, Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to be your helper. Boethos. Boethos. Helper. Deuteronomy 33.26. That word Boethos also found, curiously, in Hebrews 13.6. Psalm 118.6, which is Septuagint 117.6. What can man do to me if God is my Boethos. The verb boethesai is also found 
Again, quite curiously, in Hebrews 2, 17 to 18, our merciful and faithful archpriest who comes to the aid of Boethesi, those who are being tested. Does he come to our aid on a chariot throne? He rides the heavens to our help. Ezekiel was living in a refuge camp, a ghetto populated by Jews who had been deported from their own capital city, Jerusalem, to Shinar in the lower courses of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Under the first phase of the Babylonian invasion by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, happened in two phases. A king who claimed absolute despotic power. According to the notes on Ezekiel in the New Living Translation, on Ezekiel 1.1, this vision occurred, quote, on the fifth day of the fourth month of the ancient Hebrew lunar calendar. The note goes on to say that a number of dates in Ezekiel can be cross-checked with dates in surviving Babylonian records and related accurately to our modern calendar. So they say pretty dogmatically this event occurred on July 31st, 593 B.C. We know what happened in 586 B.C. Ezekiel was, a, was living, again, in a refugee camp. A second attack on Jerusalem was impending. So Ezekiel was among the deported Jews from Jerusalem, a 30-year-old man who would have been a priest had he been in Jerusalem, but he certainly kind of got ushered into the Holy of Holies even though he was in Babylon. On the day of this vision, Ezekiel was near the irrigation canal. I'm repeating some of this just because of the sense that we want to give the context to this vision. The canal called the Kebar, C-H-E-B-A-R, which came off the Euphrates River. For Ezekiel to see this regnant figure, this man who is above the angelic beings in the highest heaven, to see this man above enthroned on a chariot throne of lapis lazuli that seemed to be heaven in concentrated form. This must have been particularly striking to him in light of the despot who was enthroned on earth and seemed to have control of Israel's destiny, seemed to have control of their destiny. In the penultimate vision of Ezekiel, there's a river that flows out from the heavenly temple, giving life to all of humanity and all of creation. Revelation has a similar penultimate vision of a crystal river of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, a depiction of the proceeding Holy Spirit, the spirit of life and of grace who is poured out on all flesh and who renews all the creation. When we read the words, therefore, in our Hebrews homily of such an archpriest, let's think of this enthroned one with the shape and form of a man above who himself is the radiance of Yahweh. That's explicitly said of him in Hebrews 1.3 in connection with Hebrews 8.1. 
If we are enthralled by the scriptures, and we should be as believers, or by any passage therein, we have to think that it is God who breathed these scriptures who enthralls us. For all scripture is God-breathed, and, the, and God the Spirit is that breath. In fact, we read as we go on in Ezekiel that Ezekiel, who fell at the feet of this vision, was stood up by the Spirit that entered into him, and he heard instructions from the Lord and was commissioned as a prophet. When the Spirit of truth, call him the breath of truth, leads us into all the truth, we are filled with astonishment at what we hear, at whom he reveals. Woe to us when we read the Bible, how flippantly and superficially that is said, I read my Bible. Woe to us when we read the Bible but are not astonished at what we find therein. When we're truly led by the breath of truth into all the truth with its substance and center in Jesus, we can readily identify with the disciples to whom the risen Jesus expounded the scriptures. For those students of his said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? That's why I say we're enthralled. The enthroned Yahweh man embodies the reconciled person, all of reconciled humanity. For God was in him, in Christ, reconciling the world of human beings to himself, even as the man Christ Jesus became sin for us all. Of all and as all humanity, Jesus needed to be reconciled with God. Of all humanity, he needed to be reconciled with God because in becoming a curse and in becoming sin, he effectively became the man of lawlessness the ultimate enemy of God, and in a sense, the enemy of himself. The person who receives the reconciliation is not entirely left in the human condition, and this is an important advance in doctrine, even though this is part of what we might call a meditation. The person who receives the reconciliation is not entirely left in the human condition. In fact, the bulk of the New Testament is written to those who have received the reconciliation and who have acknowledged it and who have received the Holy Spirit and are being empowered and directed by him. We who have received the reconciliation are urged in Colossians 3.1 as those who have been raised with Christ to focus on what is above where Christ is where he is seated on the right hand of God. And we are urged to set our minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. Colossians 3.1 That we have been raised together with Christ refers to the change of our situation. <clears throat> 
We await the change of our condition <coughs> by the change that will occur in the twinkling of an eye at the blast of the last trumpet. For now, we confess that we died. We died. And that our lives are now hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 3. The radical alteration of our situation, in other words, is hidden. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. But we're also assured that when Christ appears in glory, that we will appear with him. Having undergone that radical alteration of our condition and the permanent alteration of our somatic status. To be clothed with incorruptible and immortal bodies of glory like our Lord's. In this meantime then, this time in between, let's be unabashedly enthralled by the vision of the man Christ Jesus, enthroned at the right hand of the eternal majesty, which is his father, his father, and ours. This is the vision afforded to us in our heavenly homily, Hebrews. In this meantime, let's pay heed to the words of the embattled apostle who in the midst of his agona said, for this momentary insignificant lightweight tribulation of ours is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. We're reminded once again of the definition of kabod in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for glory. That it's heavy and that Paul uses the word weight of glory, baros doxes. Paul deliberately associates glory in 2 Corinthians 4.17 or significance with weight W-E-I-G-H-T. Our archpriest is of such significance, we could say carries such weight, that he is none other than the man above who was seen in a vision of God. Ezekiel 1.1, a vision of God by Ezekiel. While the prophet was in exile and living in a refugee camp with fellow Jewish exiles on the Kabar Canal of the Euphrates River in Babylon on July 31st, 593 BC. Only now, for us, this man above has the name Jesus, and in him is all of humanity once in Adam, now in Christ. This man above in Ezekiel's vision has since been radically altered himself by becoming flesh like us, and then becoming transformed in resurrection and glorification so that we will become as he is when we see him in his true essence. This has been a meditation to prepare us for an enhanced appreciation of the passage before us now in Hebrews 8, 1 and following. Bless this meditation to our hearts, Father. Produce in us the enthrallment that is due 
at the vision of the man above. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.